This week at Matalan, grab 30% off all family coats, hats, scarves and gloves. And there's 30% off in our Christmas shop across selected gifts, toys, decorations and more. There's more to love at Matalan. Shop in-store, online and via the app. In the case of Gary Mansfield and others versus R. <laughs> On the 6th of October 1995, the defendant Mansfield, having been convicted of being knowingly concerned in the fraudulent evasion of the importation of diamorphine, Contrary to Section 1702 of the Customs and Excise Management Act 1979, was sentenced to 14 years imprisonment. The question of an appeal against conviction can be dealt with shortly. Mr Mansfield's case was simply a question of whether the jury was sure that he knew the holdalls he picked up contained illicit drugs. There was nothing in the course of the trial or the judge's summing up which could afford Mr Mansfield any ground for appealing against his conviction. Turning to the question of sentence, the prosecution alleged that this was a sophisticated operation involving a number of trips abroad by various of the conspirators before the importation of the large consignment of drugs which the customs intercepted in the possession of Mansfield. Thanks for coming on, Gary. Oh, no, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I thought it was £2 million worth of heroin. Yeah, well... It was four. It was 4.2. 4.2 million pounds of heroin. Yeah, they initially said it was five, but then they come down a little bit. But, yeah, 4.2. Had you been in police trouble before that? I've been, yeah, I've been to jail before for fighting. And for I've, fighting. Been a, I've just been a little fug around... The town that I grew up in, which was Dagenham in Essex. Daggers. Yeah. I used to drive through Daggers at night. That's the best thing to do is drive through it. <laughs> cars, police chases, cars on fire. Yes. yes. It's, it's, it's wild out there, isn't it? Yes, it's okay. It was It was the the mid-80s when, when I grew up around there. So that's where you were born? Yeah. And growing up in the mid-80s, was it, was it crazier back then? Oh, it was, yeah, it was a bit potty. There was a lot of racial stuff going on, the skinheads and, you know, all that sort of stuff going on. It, it yeah, wasn't, it wasn't too good a time to grow up, but I didn't have much choice, did I? Really? Were you a punk rocker or anything? No, no, I was a, I was an odd looking skinhead. Cause I've always been a little <laughs> fat kid, so little fat kid with a bald head, you know, <laughs> with a skinhead. What music were you into back then? Oh, it was in Madness and Specials and yeah, you know, that Scar. Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I remember all that. that Top was, of the pops. Yeah, that was the best. <laughs> it was the best. And at school, did you behave yourself? I didn't like school. It didn't sort of appeal to me too much. So you didn't um, excel? No, not really. I just wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. And how young were you when you finished your education? Oh, six. I went to the end. I was 16. And what I, did you do then? Um, my dad had a pub in Dagnum. Um, just went and worked in there for a, about 18 months. What what kind of a pub was it? Oh, it was it was a really rough pub. It, <laughs> it was it was called the Church Elm, and it was like mm. a an ICF pub, uh, like the West Ham. Um, Explain sort of, what that is for the sorry. Americans. Um, the ICF is in in Britain in the eighties and nineties. Um, all football football clubs, soccer clubs had affiliated 
fighting fans, you know, and um, West Ham were, were one of the biggest, called the ICF, which was the Intercity firm. The Intercity was a train they used to catch. I mean, I wasn't part of that, but um, it was it was good to be around it. It was exciting. But did you um, have to get in the mix in the, in the pub when there was fights and try and stop yeah, them? Yeah, see, I, I did, but only because I was sort of up for it, you know, rather than that it was never my job. Um, but you know, I was, I was always a, a tear away who enjoyed a, a scrap, you know. And how old are you when you got in the police trouble for the scrap? Um, I was, I think I was 17 when I got arrested. I got done for free GBH. I think it was free GBH, two ABH and a firearms. The firearms were CS gas. What's the story behind all uh, that? Well, I was, I was outside a, a well-known pub called the Fiddlers in Dagenham. Um, and three guys were taunting this other younger guy who I knew. And he was a couple of years younger than me. And I stood at the bus stop and just sort of watched it out and, you know, just to see how it went. Then they started getting a little bit physical with him. So I've run over, started sort of, you know, having a having a tear up. They tried to get in the car. That's when I got the gas out and squirted them in the, in the car. And every time they tried to jump out the car, I'd sort of push them back in and give them a little little squirt. And it turns out the guy that I helped, who was getting beaten up, he's the one who grasped me up to the police. No. Yeah, I know. Potty, eh? What a little shit. Yeah, you know, he was only probably, if I was 17, he was probably 15, 16. Some people might be wondering, why were you carrying CS gas around? I I just always used to carry something. Yeah. I wasn't into knives at that point. Just in case anything popped off, because it was a dangerous yeah. neighbourhood. Yeah, oh, man, in the 80s, it, you'd get beaten up just by sort of not being in the right place, you know? And if yeah. you were a skinhead and someone else was a mod or, yeah, if if you didn't, it was a party time to grow up, really. So you charged with what? I, th- I think it was three GBH, two ABH, and a f- and they, they called it firearms because CS gas is trigger operated. Oh. So that's the only reason it was a firearms offence. Did you get out of young offenders or did they send you there? I got, well, I went into Chelmsford Prison, which is what they call a local um, which is local to my area, before you get allocated to another jail. And I went to Hollisey Bay, which is a, an open prison in Suffolk, in the southeast, east, southeast of England. Um, easy, easy bit of jail, really. I got, I got sentenced to a year, done six months. So no problems at all during that six months? No. Even with the really. guards? The guards didn't mess with you? No, not really. No, it was... It was just an easy... I mean, I've heard stories on... When I've been listening to your your podcast, and I've heard stories of, like, awful stuff going on. I didn't really... Like Pepsi Watson and Young Offender. Yeah, I, he's, he's good, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. So what when you got out? When I got out, I realised then that I'd been around Dagenham, I'd made too much of a name for myself with the police. Mm. Um, and I was into selling... I'd always been into selling, like, fake clothing at the time. And what were you sourcing that? Oh, it just it, it started off. I was just getting it off of someone and selling it individually to schoolmates and stuff because it was at the time when um, there was a fashion called the the casuals, which was the first um, designer clothing fashion to come about, really. Um, which was probably I don't know, maybe eighty two, eighty three. But then they started wearing clothing that was expensive, whereas before it was punks and skinheads who sort of just wore what was at hand, really. Um, so brands become um, expensive or fashionable even. Um, so we just sell fake ones of them. And then over the years, you know, I go from 
being just the guy that sells it on the street to the one who supplies the guys on the street. And it's sort of going, it was only a living I was earning, you know. It was just so I didn't have to get a job, really. So is that how you got into a network of things that were being smuggled? No, not really. Oh, okay. yes. Yes and no. I mean, it, I, I, I'd worked my way up, but I'd always been in the clubs, in the like in the West End, working the doors. I was doing um, debt collecting and that sort of thing. Um, but it was the guys that um, I was getting the clothes off who ended up um, stitching me up with the drugs. Before we get to that, have you got any debt collecting stories from that period? Not really. They just, that's what I'm saying. They all went pretty smoothly, really. I sort of turn up, asked, it, it wasn't like massive big debts, but, you know, it'd be a couple of grand. I'd, I'd tell them I was coming and I sort of... And they had it. Got it, it yeah. Because that was your reputation preceding you. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So how did it cross over from clothes to drugs? Well, I'd never... I know you don't know my story, but I'd never been in dro- involved with drugs at all. I mean, I was I was in the um, in the club scene since the, um, the rave scene started, like, you know, working the doors and that. Never, never had an ecstasy pill. Um, was never into drugs. Um, and then these guys, I, I started getting the clothing off of, off of like a new bunch of guys. Um, and at one time I was going, I had some friends in Liverpool. So I was going up to Liverpool. This is where the story gets, gets long. I was going up to Liverpool to visit some friends. The guy I was getting the clothing off, a guy called Sid, he knew I was going up there and he asked if I can drop some of these labels up to his guys in Birmingham. Now at the time, the labels used to come on a big rolled and not like now where they're embroidered straight into the shirt they was actually well like this one really it's it was a it might be the alligator you know or uh, the the lacoste sign that would be stitched in so he asked me if i'd take the labels up to his guys in birmingham to be stitched into the garments so i figured i'm going to meet my friends anyway in liverpool this uh it's on the way he's going to give me a couple of hundred quid for it you know pay for a night out you know (laughs) so he had a calf, a lorry park, calf in a lorry park, like a trucker's calf in Essex near um, Lakeside, just on the on the Thames there in Grays. Um, gone down to meet the guy. I don't even know who I'm picking it up from. You know, these, these, he's opened up his boot, two black holdalls, took one out, put it in the back of my car, the other one, put that in the back of my car, said goodbye to this fella, got in my car, and as I'm reversing out of the parking space, there's a main road running behind us. And I'm looking in my rearview mirror and I saw a blue car in my mirror being chased by a police van. Mm. And uh, it was a, a, a car called a, a Vauxhall. So I'm still reversing out. And I've, as I've looked, behind, I looked over my shoulder to you know, make sure there's no traffic coming, this blue car had come into the car park and it was all gravel and stuff and the van was behind it. So I thought, well, this is quite exciting for a Saturday afternoon, you know, or Saturday morning, rather. Um, and then the car has screeched to a halt. And this is, bearing in mind, this is all in a couple of seconds. You know how it is when it sort of all goes a bit like this. I looked and the, the guy driving had a tie on and it was a woman in her 40s in the passenger seat. And I just, I thought for a second that that don't quite look like the people who would be getting chased by a, by the police, you know. And then the door opened before she even... Um, before the car even come to a stop. And she's got out and started running towards me. 
And she's shouting and hollering, and I thought, well, surely she ain't going to fucking try and, you know, hijack my car or, you know, like, get away like that. And uh, and just as she's got near me, she's, she's shouting and hollering, and then all of a sudden, bang, my back window's gone. My door's come flying open, and, and again, this is all within two or three seconds. And I've looked around, and I've just seen this figure just dragging me out of the car. I've, I've done my best to keep on my feet. I've stood up, and I've just seen police everywhere. Um and I've got, and I've, I've, I don't know how, but I had the, my car keys were on my thumb, like around my, my thumb. And I've put my hands in the air and all of a sudden this copper's hit me up the back of the ribs with like a, tr- a truncheon or, you know, the, the cost that they have. He's hit me up the ribs and just at that time he's kicked my left foot away mm. and my foot's come down, uh, my foot, my chin's come down and hit the roof of the car. And I've spun around and pulled my fist back to to like give him a clump. And that's when I saw a copper standing Ooh. there with a gun. He's just going, go on, go on. I thought, fucking hell, they're going to try and, you know, it's as if they're trying to kill me. And even the blonde woman turned out to be customs. She's not quite jumped between us, but she's shouting to the police to calm down, you know. And, uh, and, and you know yourself, it was probably the same feeling that you had when the police busted you. It's more or less silent and slow motion. It's just everything going on. It's a multi-sensory experience, isn't yeah. it, you know. And it was just coming from me, coming from me. Um, they've cuffed me up, put me in the back of the car. Um, and that's when I see them taking the bag, taking the bags out. And, uh, I just thought, oh, they're going to be gutted when they see that it's just, um, just these labels and they're getting them all out, putting them on the floor. But I did think at the time, because they was putting these parcels down, which were about, um, the size of a, a bit of paper, you know, but about maybe three inches thick. I'd seen them before and they were round, these, what the labels were on. You know, I didn't think too much of it. But when we've got down to the police station, like I told them my name, date of birth and that. When we got down to the police station, there was a, um, a the desk sergeant. So the customs had to tell the desk sergeant who I was and what I'd been arrested with. So she said, words to the effect of, this is Gary Mansfield is being arrested for the importation of, um, a large amount of class A drugs, namely diamorphine. Now, I had no idea what diamorphine was. I just heard the word morphine and figured that was something to do with what they have in hospitals. I went, what's what's diamorphine? And she said, it's heroin. And fucking hell, I I went. I was, I'd gone, I'd lost it. I was going, fucking heroin, fucking. And and it was just as they took the, the cuffs off me. And just as this happened, they've opened the door and they're bringing someone else in. And it so happened to be the guy who had just introduced me to this Sid. And I'll, I'll change his name, but he's Mick. So they brought Mick in. And I've seen him and they've, they've, the copper was just locking the gate behind him. And I went fucking heroin and I've run towards him to sort of, you know, whatever. And... um. I felt this resistance and it was like, you know when you're playing about in a swimming pool as a kid and you're trying to run through the water? It was, I felt that, but it turned out I had a a policeman round my neck, one round my waist and I'm dragging (laughs) another one along and I'm just trying to get them before long. I've just got brought down, you know, like a buffalo by a load of lions, dragged into a cell and sort of, you know, it's back in them days, they give you a little, a few little digs to quieten you down. So did you have to go in front of a judge? Uh, Two days, they held us for 48 hours in that police station. Then we went in front of the first judge who said that there's 
obviously a case to answer. I can't really say that fucking 50 kilos of heroin is personal use, can I? So, um, yeah, they said um, we're to be held in, in prison, in the local prison, which was Chelmsford. And it, it still didn't quite dawn on me how bad it all was until we was going to the prison in the police van and our police vans have got a small window, a black window, which is maybe six inches by 15 inches possibly. And I'm looking out of that and we, we stopped at these traffic lights and I, in the shop window that I looked at, I just saw a van behind us. As soon as we stopped, the van behind us, door opened, armed police got out and I thought, fucking hell, this is heavy. This is, this is a di- different level to what, what I'm used to, you know. So were you granted a, a bail bond or anything? After three months I was, but it was strange because the, the people, there was a five of us arrested. One was this Sid, Mick. They got bail and they were the top of the ladder on, on the police charge. And I thought that was a bit odd how they got bail anyway. Um, and it came, I was the last one to, out of five of us, I was the fourth to get bail. The fifth wasn't able to raise the funds. I think mine was either a hundred or £150,000. Were you making headline news? Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was on the TV, radio, that sort of thing that this big bust had happened. So how are the prisoners receiving you? Have it been known how much you had? Well, it was, it was quite a funny old experience, really, because when I went first, I mean, I know that youth prison is a lot different to adult prison. But I knew fully well that, um, you know, everyone I know was a criminal. You know, I, I didn't know many people who weren't. Um, and I'd spent a lot of time in prisons visiting and, you know, that sort of thing. So I knew very well that normally you go in, you've got everyone sort of looking down, trying to intimidate you, you know, that sort of thing. But this had happened on there. It was a massive, it was a massive thing. And it, I wasn't aware, but it had gone around that there was one of the guys who got arrested. Um, the police pointed a gun at him and I attacked the, the policeman, which <laughs> it wasn't correct, but I weren't going to tell him. It, yeah. <laughs> so, but when I walked in, like normally they're trying to sort of stare you down and I walked in and it was as if people didn't want to make eye contact, you know? <laughs> so we was already, we was already sort of quite up there when we walked in yeah. and the, the police in this local prison, they're like local, oh, sorry, the guards, the, the screws, they're local anyway. They don't want any fucking egg. So they was easy to manipulate as well, you know? Like when, when uh, you know, I was there for a year. What security level was your first um, part? Well, I was in a, in a B category prison. So it's high security, but not. Um, Did you have a cellmate? I refused them. I just said, I don't want to sell, mate. And they said, okay. <laughs> so the whole time, you, you, the first year, you got through without any well, cellmates? I ended up with a couple. Um, it got to, first of all, I said, I don't want to sell, mate. And they didn't put one in with me. Then it, it got to a point when a jail was getting f- so full. They said, look, we've got to put, he's either got to come with you or he's going down the block. So up the block being the um, seg, the segregation. Um, so I did, I did let a couple in. Sometimes it'd be, I'd say, well, don't, I don't want this guy in with me because I don't know him, but you know, my mate is upstairs, let him come down and, you know, we'd be in the, at least I'm in a cell with someone I know, you know, um, 
so that was it really. I didn't really have, I think I had three, in that first year, I think I had three cellmates. One was for two nights. That was, he didn't, he didn't last too long. Um, Why didn't he last? It, it turned out he was a rapist. No. Yeah. And it, see, this is a f- funny little stop. Well, it's not funny. It, well, it's funny for us. It weren't for him. But <laughs> two nights before this, uh, two nights before this happened, there was an instance in a prison that was. It was. It's since been you know over the media. Bearing in mind this was mid nineties. So a few years after, when it all came out, um, there was a guy who had been arrested who was getting messages from the devil. So they'd put him into one cell. Then there was a guy got brought in who was getting messages from Jesus. So fuck knows why. They decide, well, you know where this is going. They've put him in the same Peter, in the same cell. So you've got, and, and you know who's going to come out on top there, don't you? The devil wins all the time in a tear-up. But he killed him. But oh, no. To a... Uh, an awful extent. He, him. he didn't just beat him. To, well, we had we had, <sighs> we had at the time they just brought in these metal sink and toilet. Um, uh, it's just a, a metal, a square metal sink beside it, joined to it, was a metal toilet. The devil has got the other guy, and he's just smashing his head mm. on the corner of the the sink. By the when the screws got there, um. They said that the, the cell was like nothing you'd ever seen. There was mm. brain matter on the floor. Mm. They'd not found his ear. His his ear was missing, presumed eaten or flushed. Jesus. That was the only two places it could have been. Wow. And Jesus ain't the right word. <laughs> but yes, but and then two days later, um, they let this guy in and I refused first of all I refused him in. And the screw was being so apart. He said, Look, there's nowhere to put him. The block's full, the prison's full. I said, all right, he can come in, but, you know, only till sort of tomorrow sort of thing. So he's, he's come in and I'm talking to him. I was doing, I'd just got into, I'd, I'd just been, I'd just learned how to do these little cartoon drawing, um, drawing things. So I was, I was doing a few of these and I've told the guy to sit up on the bunk. I always went, I know that the thing is to have the top bunk, but I always preferred the bottom. I said, just get up there and just read a paper. Don't talk to me, you know. And I'm just sitting there drawing and every time the news come on, maybe, say, six o'clock, he started talking really loud to me. And I was going, calm down, calm down. And an hour later, he started again. And I was like, just calm down. You're getting on my nerves now. And then I, on the third time, I saw that it was on the hour. And the news was on the local radio. And I hadn't taken any notice. So I said, I'm going to listen to about maybe five two or ten to the hour whatever it was say ten o'clock i said i'm going to listen to me me music so i put my headphones on put a then it was a tape put a tape in press play but i hadn't put it over to tape it was still on radio mm. so i'm sitting there drawing and as if i'm listening to music then the news has come on and it said today in chelmsford um, yeah, so and so was arrested, or um, they didn't say his name. They said a man was arrested. It turns out he's he's done the the awful thing of grabbing someone, literally jumping out the bushes with a hammer, attacking them with a hammer. And I was just sitting there, and when I'm listening to it, I've just looked up and I thought, oh, <laughs> you're fucked. Um, and I, but I, got, I had a bit of it was a weird old feeling because I had no qualms in in. 
I was going to say fighting him. I had no qualms of, of sort of giving him a good idea. But there was no way out. You know, I couldn't, I was, it was a definite arrest. Because I'm in the cell with him. I can't say he just sort of, you know, kept falling out of bed. Um, and then I, I started talking to him. Um, I thought, well, I, I, what if this isn't the guy? What if this isn't the one on the news? So we started, I started talking about these people on the wing who are called listeners, who are trained by the Samaritans to sort of help any inmates who are feeling a bit vulnerable, down, depressed. So I told him I was one of these. And then we started talking about um, um, how everyone's innocent until proven guilty and, you know, that sort of thing. And he'd already heard that I was a sort of well-known figure in, in the jail. Um, and I said, well, like, even if, even if you was dodgy, I said, um, I said, I'll tell them that, you know, you're innocent till proven guilty. And, uh, we kept talking about, you know, this sort of thing. I'm trying to sort of talk to him and I've got up to have a piss. I'm standing there and he, he was behind me. His, his head was just behind me here. And he went, Gary, can I tell you something? And then I thought, I don't want to fucking hear it. The time's come, you know, so I'm having a piss. And uh, he went, I'm in, in for that. You know, there was a, on the nose. And he went, the funny thing is, just as I was finishing, he said, blah, blah, blah. The funny thing is, and then that was just my little, because I had to try and justify myself. And I went, funny, fucking funny. And I I turned around and I'd give him a, a sort of punch like I've never really done before with a side of my fist. Just hit him. And he started sort of going into, I'd never seen it, but he was like shaking. And, and then I, then it went a bit sort of awry from there. And I'd lost my rag so much. And I'd, I swore I'd never do it again. I just didn't, it was as if I'd left my body, if you know what I mean. I was just getting him and picking him up off the floor as if he was a pillow with, with no effort. I was throwing him on the floor giving him a few digs and then I'd, I remember just picking him up and putting him on the bunk not one-handed but I remember putting him on the bunk and it was as if I was just putting shopping away you know and then but that happened three or four times and um with him or separate people oh no with him it, that this night that night and, yeah and, and I remember someone's going gal gal what's the matter and I said I've got a fucking nonce in with me and they're going kill him kill him and at the time he was in a heap at the bottom of like just underneath the window and I'm at the other end near the door and I could hear him going, kill him, kill him. And this is where it goes a bit, a bit odd. Um, all of a sudden, it was just like in a film when, like I said earlier, it just went silent. It was going, kill him, kill him. Then nothing, apart from one voice in my head going, kill him. And it was just a, I don't know if it was my voice, but it was just a quiet, calm voice, kill him, kill him. And I just walked over to him picked him up round the neck and I just started squeezing. And then, but I remember picking him up by the neck and I had him up underneath the window and then all of a sudden something kicked in and I just let him go and I was like, fuck, and then I started panicking because I was there and, and I just realised it's... Like, I've always been around violence but that was something a bit different and that scared the fucking life out of me because I realised that there's something primal had, had just happened and I didn't know what it was. But I didn't want to go there again. The red mist had taken over. Yeah, it was it was fucking awful, and and it could happen. I'm, I'm, I don't know if it could happen to anyone, 
but it was a sort of culmination of all sorts of chemicals going on in my brain that well, I think scary. we've all got the capacity to kill. I mean, look at how brutal um, people have been over the ages. We've got to defend ourselves yeah. in situations. But this was pure, oh, I was going to say bullying. He was a, a rapist, so it doesn't matter. But if it was if it was my kid, if it was my child that he'd done it to, there's a, some sort of justification there, sort of. But me, I, I don't know. I, I still can't get to grips with what it was now, but... Well, it's the convict it code, isn't it? I mean, think of the women, you know, that fucking he pulled a hammer on, did yeah. that too. It's fucking. But I remember the screw coming to the door and he was going, Mansfield, Mansfield, leave him, leave him. And this is when um, I was picking him up and throwing him and picking him up and throwing him. And I was throwing him against the wall up on the top bunk. And it was as if like, I'd had a, a rag and thrown the rag on the wall, you know, the splatters. And normally the screws wouldn't come running in. It, one screw come down, one guard come down looked through the hole, shouted at me, but he can't open the door on his own. He's got to go and get someone else. And they've just opened the door and they're going, Mansfield, Mansfield. And I've just picked him up, thrown him out. And I went, I went, get this prick out of it. And I did say, he keeps jumping off the bed. Or something stupid, I said, you know, he keeps falling off the bed. But I've got him and the screw went to shut the door. I went, leave that fucking door. I got his mattress, I threw his mattress out. And then I just stood there like a fucking lunatic, possessed, just throwing everything out that he had owned you know he's, he had a big bag of of bits and pieces that was all going out the door um and then next day the next morning I, my hands were up you know and i've looked i've woken up and i've seen all this blood around and i thought fucking hell and the screws had opened the door and the mattress was still out there and there was an arc of maybe 30 cons not making a fucking word when i opened that door they're like what the fuck and i just went all right, <laughs> like trying to sort of make a, a funny, like so make something humorous out of the situation. Yeah, but yeah, it was it was a place I, I'd never want to go back to again. So quite often the guards don't push it when you do that to a sex vendor because they think they got it coming. Did were you worried you were going to get charged or disciplined? Well, I because I, I I didn't go directly asleep that night. You know, I was up for a good few hours, and I knew I was obviously going to get nicked, and they've. Um, They've given me a charge. They've put the charge sheet in the door, and it was just fighting, which is just fighting. It's not me assaulting. So um, as we, as I'm going down the block to see the governor, this screw who had charged me, he said, just say that he attacked you first, and um, that's the lowest one. It won't go outside of, of the prison. You know, it'd be dealt with inside the prison rather than going to court. So I went, fuck that. I said, he's, he's told me that he's a nonce. He told me, he, he confessed what he'd done. I said, I want it to go out to court. I said, that way, I'll get to court before he does for the rape. I can stand up in court and be a witness and say what he had told me. And and the, the governor, like, you know, I'm saying this to the governor as well. The governor's saying, but then, you know, the guys will treat you like a grass. I said, I don't give a fuck what they think. You know, this is a this is a rapist. That's a different realm, you know. Um, and he found me not guilty. He found me not fucking guilty. There was we had news crews outside because of what happened to to the devil and Jesus guys. There was news crews outside the jail, and I was going, "You've got them fucking people outside there, and then you put a nonce in with me." You know, like I was oh, I don't, not running it, but you know, I was a prominent figure in there. Everyone knew what I was like. 
And they put a fucking... It's as if they've put him in there on purpose, you know. That's what I was going to say next. They probably did. But they, they knew they would contain it. They were looking out for you, yeah. really. They just want you to do do the business. Yeah. And, and it... Well, they got what they wanted, you know. But I, I remember I had a visit the next day. And it was my aunt who had come up to see me. And um, I've gone out. And um, it wasn't the next day. It was about three days later. And my aunt had come up. And, I've, and my, my hand was still all swollen. And she's going, what happened there? And I was going, oh, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing, you know. And then just as we're talking, the ambulance is coming because he was in, they took the guy to outside hospital. Um, and they brought him back a few days later. But they, the visits room was near the hospital. So the ambulance has come in and they're getting this guy out. And f- I've looked around, I thought, fucking, looked like he'd been in a car crash. And the guys in the visiting room who could see out into the yard were shouting, hollering, you know, like, nonce, nonce, and, you know, pedo. And uh, my aunt went, is that him? And I went, yeah. And she went, my God, like, the, the state of him. And I, I did, I, I, I weren't going, well, he fucking deserved it, you know, because of what had happened there, I felt like, not sorry for him, but I was thinking more of, of me, you know, that's that's what's caused me to have this sort of, and, and it hasn't happened since. I'm glad to say. So, did they try and put anyone else in with you after that? No, no, it didn't. No, no <laughs> one came in with me after that. No one fucking wanted to either. But even so, when I opened the door and said he's got to go in with you, I'd just go to the screw because I didn't. I didn't get on with. I got on with most of the screws in there, the guards. But there was the odd few just try to wind up, you know. And I just said, look, if he comes in here, I'm going to fucking batter him. And obviously, you say that so they can't put him in there with you, you know. So, so what's happening in the court over this first year? Um, well, in the end, we, we go to court. Um, so I've been on remand for a year. Um, go to court. It was a, it was meant to be a six week trial because it was there were so many of us. Um, and it, it turned out to be a four week trial. You know, there was there was talking to a few of us, and I was I had some very well-known friends outside. And and like I said, I I was out for three months. I I finally got a bit of bail for three months when they was on us all the time, the Mm. the customs and police, you know, trying to... Because apart from... I know it it sounds mad, but apart from two, £4.2 million worth of drugs, they didn't know if I was part of the um, conspiracy... They didn't know if I was the main man, the the lowest man. They, they they knew nothing about any of us apart from there was a lot of drugs. So, you know, we could have all got away by saying we didn't know it was drugs. Um, although I tried that and that didn't work. But when I was in, um, I was told by some friends, um, they said, when you get in the dock, say it was Sid. Point your finger at him and say it was him. I was like, no. And they said, well, look, they've put you in this position. They've, like, more or less grasped you up by putting you there. You can stand up in the dock and say it was him. And I went, I can't fucking do it. And these, as I say, these people were properly high up. And they said, well, just, if anyone has got anything to say about it, point them to us. And I was like, I, I just can't, I can't do it. And when the time come, when the prosecution said to me, is Sid in the room? And I've sort of looked over, in a, at a glance, I've looked over to him and he's put his head down and I said, no. And I, I knew I was always going to say no. It, I'd lived by them soppy rules 
you know, I was only 26, but I'd lived by them rules. You know, you, you don't do this, you don't do that. I've looked and I said, no, he, he's not in the room. And he's looked up, looked over at his family and went, yes. And I thought, you cunt. Oh, sorry. I thought, you've, I've just fucking sailed myself down the river and all you can do is fucking think of yourself. You can't even look over and give a nod. You know what I mean? I knew that, I knew at that point I'd sailed myself down the river. And I figured that I'd get an 18 because I knew that my charge, it goes up, I'm sure you're aware, it goes up in different weights. Um, and where I was at, it started at 14 years. So I figured I'd get 18 years. And I've just given myself 18 years and that prick couldn't even fucking sort of give me a nod. Mm. And that was then when I started looking at crime in a different, or criminals, villains, you know, in a in a different light. And I thought, I don't want to be around these fucking people. And, and I saw even when I went to jail then, like, you know, I ended up getting 14. And I went into a high security prison called Swellside in the Isle of Sheppey. And as soon as I got there, because of the friends I had outside, the better known guys on the inside, as soon as I turned up, you know, they was telling me to come and meet them and, you know, sort of introducing me. They're friends of friends. And so I walked into a, a good thing there. Um, but even then I thought, I don't want to be a fucking part. If this is how it's going to be. And I, I wasn't going to tar all the cons with that same brush, you know. But the more I saw it and the more I started sort of looking at different villains, and it was the big villains who were the, who were the arses, you know. The, 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 the smaller ones were, were all right, really. On my first, um, as soon as I got to Swellside, I was fighting within less than five minutes. Over what? Um, well, when I got into reception, they said, as long as you don't go to A-Wing, you're all right. And it was seconds after the guy went, Mansfield, A-Wing. And I went to the guy, oh, cheers for that. You know, like sort of jinxing me. So I've gone down to A-Wing. I've been given like this induction cell, walked in, put my bag on the bed. As soon as my bag hit the bed, a little raggedy... Guy come running in, obviously a sort of drug user, junkie, you know, however you want to say it. Mate, you got any burn? Like tobacco? I said, mate, I've just walked in. I went, yeah, give me a break. He'd gone away. He's come back less than a minute later. Got your burn yet? Found your burn? I went, mate, fuck off. He's come back a third time. Have you got your burn? This is like under five minutes. So I went, mate, fuck, and I've thrown him out of the cell. <laughs> and then fucking, I'm, I'm getting my stuff out of my bag. And then next minute, the doors come open and him and his mate have come running in. You know, blades come, just come in, do me over a fucking fag, you know, cigarette. And uh, yeah, ended up sort of fighting with them two. And that was within five minutes of getting in the jail. And they've got knives and stuff? Yeah. So did you get, was the blood spilt on that occasion? Not mine. Well, I had, I had a little one in the side, but it weren't. A little one in the side. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it sort of, that weren't so bad. <laughs> Um, a, a little hole, I meant. Uh, you got a good way with words. Um, yeah, I've got one in the side. Um, <laughs> it weren't, yeah, it weren't a bad, a bad. It weren't too bad, but um, yeah. And then I thought, fucking, oh, this is how it's going to be. Yeah, you know, I've been here genuinely less than five minutes. I've had a fight with two guys. So how did you assert yourself in that? Well, luckily, just every jail I went to, I knew people there straight away, and because of the friends I had outside. Um, who were quite prominent, you know, they'd always messaged, uh, you know, people ahead to say, you know, Gary's coming here, he's a friend of, 
you know. Um, so I've got a, an half-decent reception, you know. Um, yeah, so it was all right. Did they try and put any cellmates in with you? No. It, it, they didn't have it there at Swellside. They, it was just one man. They started to bring it in, but I was in Swellside for, I think it was three and a half years. Never had a cellmate in all that time. How did you pass your time? Um, well, I got into art, and I, I had, I'd never been into it before. Um, I wanted to get into computers because I, I figured, um, I mean, I'd started looking at villainy and crime. My family had been ripped apart because I got this massive sentence. And even though I was stitched up by other people, I'd got myself in that position, you know. So I just thought, I don't want to be a fucking part of this. I want to go straight. And um, I thought I'd sign up to computers. This was mid-90s. Computers were kicking off. I didn't know how to fucking spell computer, let alone work one, you know. <laughs> so I thought I'd sign up to the computer class. And the queue was massive. The list was massive to go in there. But one of the guys had said to me, if you get in the, art, um, if you get in the education department doing anything and put your list down, it, that pushes you up the list a bit, you know. So I've had a look and there was English maths, hairdressing course they had that didn't appeal to me. Then there was art. And I thought, fucking hell, at school, art was the easy class you go into, you know, um, just for a doss and a laugh. And one of my mates was in there. Um, so I said, oh, I'll, I'll do that just for a, a couple of weeks um, until I can get into the, the computer class. And I uh, went in there and there was a an art tutor in there called Dougie. Um, and he was he was a really funny guy anyway. He was it was a pleasure to go there just to see him because he was he was just a really nice, pleasant, very sarcastic guy. He disliked the screws, he disliked authority, although he worked in a prison. And he was it was a bloody pleasure to come off of that loony bin um wing that I was on and, and you know, sort of <laughs> be around him and you know, people like that. And I didn't know how to draw and he told me to um as an exercise to draw this wooden ball in a wooden bowl and you just had to literally colour it in. So I thought, well, that's simple, you know, just with a, a plain grey pencil and it was awful because I didn't know what I was doing. And he, he said to me, like, you know, this is what you've got to do. Do this, do that, look out for this, uh, you know, be a bit more observant. And then when I'd done it a second time, it sort of resembled slightly and I thought, fucking hell, I can do it. <laughs> then he said, well, try, there was another project, try a portrait. So I'd done a portrait of a, an actor called Stephen Burkoff. And I, oh, it was awful. Yeah, it was awful. But then he's, he showed me how to sort of the, the method or the method he uses to draw an eye, then the next eye, then the nose. And started doing it. It, it sort of got there. And he was only meant to do it for an hour. I done it. I took it back to my cell overnight. Worked, well, over the weekend. And I spent hours and hours and hours. And I've done this portrait that looked like him, you know. And I walked back in and uh, I said to Dougie, look at that. And he's, he, he, he didn't, his eyes didn't well up, but you could see that he was so <laughs> proud that one, because everyone used to take the piss out of him. You know, he was like, he was like a camp Basil 40. You know, he was that sort of age. He was, he was brilliant. Um, and I've walked in, I've shown him this and you can see that there was so much pride that he's actually got someone who's taken a bit of notice, you know, and, um, that was it. I was hooked on on art then, and that's how I I sort of worked. And there was a an exhibition called 
Sensations in the UK at this point. And it was um, it was called Sensations because everything was sensationalised in the show. You know, it, a lot of people thought that it was just um, made for the shock value. It was the Damien Hurst with the cow and um, Tracy Emin. She made this tent with all names inside. So everyone was saying it was easy sort of art. And one of the tutors had brought in um, the catalogue, the, the brochure for this show. And I was looking at it and I was going, oh, that's, that's easy. Anyone can do this art, you know. And um, she said to me, don't, don't just diss it. and Don't just push it to one side because you don't understand it. Take it back to yourself and have a read of it. And then, by all means, you know, slag it off after that. And I did. And I took it back. And there was this bookmark in there, which was a postcard. And on the postcard, it was a picture of a colander. Um, just a household colander that you'd have underneath your sink. And it was upside down. And in all of the holes was nuts and bolts. And I'd already said to the tutor, like, you know, what the fuck's this? How's this a work of art? So I said, well, how much is this worth? And she said, you can bet your bottom dollar that's way over five grand. And I thought, fucking hell, that's a like a five five pound colander and, you know, a visit down the hardware <laughs> shop for some a bag of nuts and bolts. So I thought, oh, there's, there's got to be something there. But I've gone back and I've read what the story was. And it was by an artist called Mona Hatoum. And she was, I, I always forget this, she was either Palestinian living in Lebanon or Lebanese living in Palestine, one of, one of the ways. And she'd come to the UK to study. And there was a, a regime change or an uprising at home and she wasn't allowed back because she was an educated woman, so she wasn't welcome. And she'd made this artwork to describe how she felt at the time. So the colander was meant to be a barrier over her homeland. The nuts and bolts, which were entrances and exits, were now blocked. And possibly just because of where I was at the time, I thought, fucking hell, she said all of that mm. with this colander and a bag of nuts and bolts. Mm. And then all of a sudden, it's sort of, it's made me realise what all of this is called conceptual art. It made me realise what it was because I just saw it as a colander and a bag of nuts and bolts or a shark that was in a tank. It's made me realise that they was just trying to sort of tell us an idea in the most minimal form. Um, and then I've started looking at the other artworks in here with these sort of new eyes. And I'm looking at it and I'm reading about it again. And I'm going, oh, I'm getting to understand this, you know. And then, yeah then I wanted to be an artist from that night. What prison did you go to next? Um, I went to one called Downview, um, which was um, in, it's in Surrey. It's a, a mid-security, Category C. Um, I'd done the art course in the first jail. I got told that in, the sec in, this, in Downview, I could do the second art class, the second course, which was uh, a lot higher. But it turns out they wasn't, I wasn't able to do it there. But... I went, oh, I should have said that when I was in, oh, excuse me, when I was in Swellside, the artists in that book, I wrote to them artists mm. to ask um, more about their work. And I wrote to about 30 artists, hoping that at least one of them would come back. And there was like, over the next few weeks, there was like 28 out of this 30-odd artists I'd wrote to. And it turns out, I mean, I didn't know how famous they were because I didn't know art, but they were like, that they're now world famous artists, you know, and, and and they was at the time, but I didn't know that. And they were responding. And to they you. were just sending me letters and packages and um, 
just saying like, yeah, like get involved, do this, look at this artist. And then I had like artists writing to me that I hadn't even wrote to in the first place because <laughs> they'd heard about this guy who was into art because I'd read everything they sent me and I'd reply back and say thank you for this. And out of courtesy, I'd read, read everything that they sent and it throughout my sentence, you know, they was just like pushing me, not all, not all of the time, you know, every now and then I'd get a letter off of them out of the blue saying, you know, I hope, hope you're all right, what are you up to? And it was, it was fucking amazing, really. I've never these heard anything people, like that before in my life. That's amazing. Yeah, well, well then what that done is they caught me just at the right time because I wanted to get out of crime and this gave me a new fucking family, if you like. You know what I mean? It gave me everything else because coming out of, of crime, in crime, you've got the excitement. All, all that keeps us there is the excitement, the money, and the camaraderie, if you like, you know, and a few other bits and pieces. But luckily, I had that from this other bunch. They was offering me, they was offering me into their world, you know. So I had that bit of camaraderie, even though I'd never met any of them. The excitement was having these, which I've now discovered, or, or I'd soon discovered, were world famous artists right into this guy, you know. And I could have been a, I could have been that nonce, that rapist, you know, for all they knew. Um, so I, yeah, I went to this next prison in the hope of doing like a college course or the next course up. That didn't quite work out. Um, so I was there for ten months. Why didn't it work out? Because I got told that there was an art tutor there. There was no one there with the qualifications to teach me at the next level. Mm. They could only teach me at the level where I just finished. We There was a, a qualification called a GMVQ, and it goes in um, three being the lowest, two is the intermediate, and one is the advanced. So I'd done the intermediate, and I wanted to do the advanced, but there was no one there to teach me it. Mm. So that Dougie, who I mentioned earlier, I contacted him and said, like, you know, I've been sort of sold down the river here. Um, and I had to be in this jail for at least 10 months before I could move on. Well, Dougie had got hold of the next, um, um, the what the tutors would have to teach the students. He got hold of that and sent it to me and said, look, this is what you need to do. So I sort of taught myself the next the next course up. So you had a few people looking out for you. Yeah, all the time. And all to do with art. All to do with art. And I've, I'd found that, you know, if if you just sort of, want to make that change and you're honest about it people are willing to help you know so in downview did you get any situations not really i didn't i'd sort of i turned my back on it all um even in Swellside, when when i said that i wanted if this course i was doing this gmvq i'm going to try and do the best i can to get a hundred percent or to get the top mark if i'm if i don't get the top mark then i'm not good enough I'll just carry on what I'm doing. If I do get the top mark, I'm going to turn my back on everything. And I told everyone about it. And come the day when I got, um, when the assessor come in, after he'd, after he'd looked at all my coursework, the day he come in and he said to me, this is not only the best I've ever seen. He said, you know, this work is at university level. This work is here. And because I had all these people sort of helping me, you know, um, and as soon as he's told me all that, I was overnight different person. I was no longer a, a criminal. So your family was in shock over you getting such a big sentence, yeah. and then you turned to art. How are your relations with your family evolving over your sentence? It was yeah, it was all right. Um, it was a little bit 
I mean, it, it was hard for them. You know how it is yourself for family. They don't tell you how hard it is out here while what, you're in there. What were the visits like? They was okay. Um, it was it was at a time when it wasn't it was nowhere near as bad as it is is now with with the gang culture working in. Um, physics were were okay that's what i'm saying i've listened to to your your podcast and and you know watched them and people tell what the horrific things that they went on in the british jails and although i was aware of that i didn't witness too much of that i was lucky enough um maybe it was just i don't know I, maybe it's just because i i decided to get out of 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 the crime thing altogether um and turn my back on it that maybe i stepped away from it a little bit more but Sometimes when people see someone trying to do well for themselves in prison, they try and spoil it. Well, that's one that I did have, is when I said I no longer want to be a part of this, you know, I've turned... And loads of me mates were going, oh, blinding, blinding. You know, they knew that I was up for it, you know, that I was up for the change. And it was only when I was I was like walking around the yard with well, with one of the high-ups, and he went, oh, Gary, he said, there's a fellow over on your wing giving me a bit of ag, can you? So, and I went, no, so I've turned my back on it all now. And he went, I'm only asking you to go and have a word with him. I said, I don't fucking want to. And I thought, this is going to get nasty. But I just I had to make, you know, I, I wasn't going to let anyone drag me into it again just after I'd com- made a commitment to myself that I weren't going to. Yeah, because if you have a word and that guy doesn't like that word. Then you're back to where you started again, aren't you? Yeah. So I just said to him, no, I, I don't want to do it. And he, we just stopped in the yard. And he just looked at me. Just It felt like an hour, but it was probably three seconds, you know. And he just went... All right, <laughs> and I thought, "Fuck, something's going to happen to me here." But it it, it never did. But I, I think he just realised that. Well, I'd, I'd said to him that I was going to get out of it if if this art thing worked. It had, and I'm sure he just knew that I was going to keep to my word. And he just didn't want the want the ag of it, you know. Did you come across any uh, other prisoners who were in the news? Um, yeah, there, there, there was a funny one at the time. There was a guy who had. Um, He'd been arrested for, um, he was bringing in drugs, cannabis, resin, I think it was, in his own aeroplane. And he'd arranged to um, drop it in a field, but it overshot the field. And it had gone through people's greenhouses oh. and like bags of it, you know, landed oh. it, smacked against their houses. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a funny one. Um, yeah, a few little bits and pieces, you know. But once I turned my back on it, which was pretty early on, I didn't give a fuck what happened outside my door. You know, I mean, there was a few high-profile people coming about. The good one was uh, there was a guy called Bettany. I can't think of his first name, but he was a double agent. Um, and he was in, in Swellside. They had um, one what you might, the Americans might call a supermax. You know, they had the the, the prison within a prison, if you like. And because he was a... Uh, oh, I'm not sure what he was. I think he was ex-British um, service, you know, um, MI5, 6, you know, that sort of thing. And he was trading with the Russians. And he'd been captured. I don't know how long he got. I think it was an eight, eight years. And he was in Swellside. And although I'd never seen it, because everyone had to be locked up when he got moved. And we was told that he'd go with, there'd be four screws around him all the time and possibly a dog, you know. He was that high profile. And we was on a visit once and um, I was out on a visit and we was allowed to, if we wanted to smoke, you had to go into this room out the back. So I've gone into this room that was all 
cage. It was a cage, but there was one solid wall at the back. So I've gone in, in there to have a cigarette. Um, there was no one else in the room, so I've just went and stood over in the corner. And as I'm standing, I've heard a bit of noise coming from out here. And then the doors opened, and I've seen this screw put his head in the door. And he's and fuck knows how he didn't see me. I mean, I'm not the smallest of people, you know. He's put his, he's looked round, and he went, yeah, it's all right. And they've brought this bloke in. And he's walked in. He's sort of turned round. The door's shut. He's turned around, seen me, and he's sort of had a little start. And I went, all right. And he looked like a he looked like a nonce. Uh, and he had like tracksuit bottoms on with um, sandals and socks, and he just didn't look right. And I just went, and bearing in mind I'm straight, you know, I, I've decided to go straight. I just went, "What are you in for?" And he went, "You don't know who I am." And I went, "No." And then you've heard the screw go, "Who are you talking to?" And he went, "Him." And the doors come open. He's looked around. He's seen me. They've just grabbed this guy, pulled him out. He's, he's shouting at me, what are you doing? And then screws coming from everywhere. And I was like, what the fuck is happening here? I've just come in for a cigarette, you know. Sorry. So they've, um, yeah, they've just dragged this guy out. I've heard loads of commotion, gates shutting and, you know, doors slamming. And uh, I've, I've finished my cigarette. They've, sh- they've left me in there. I've gone out. And I've, well, I've banged to come out. And when the screw has opened, the guard has opened the door, I went, what the fuck's going on there? She said, what was that? Uh, the female officer. She said, well, what was that? And I said, well, this guy come in, sandals. I said, he, he looks a bit of a, a pedo. And she went, oh, you're joking. She went, Bethany's, Bethany, this Bethany had a visit and he'd closed visits around the back. And he'd obviously finished his visit and they put him in this holding cell. And, uh... I went, yeah, he come walking. And she said, what, you was actually, she went, you can't tell anyone. So, of course, I was going, yeah, that fucking spy, because we all knew he was in the jail. I said, that fucking spy, they put him in with me. But, um, yeah, that was about as, as high a profile. Didn't come across Bronson or anyone like that? No, no, luckily. Although he's, he was into his art at the time. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I still wouldn't have wanted a conversation with a man. What's, what's the craziest thing that you ever heard about or saw in prison? We had well, swell side. There was a it was there was lots of fights there going off a lot, and we was going down to the library one time, and we was just we, we come off of our spur to go out onto the, the like into the main centre of the jail, and then all of a sudden these bells went, you know, and there was just screws flying everywhere, and I was at this point I was on a drug free wing which had a lot less violence than than anywhere else, and it was on I was on. I was on B wing and it was happening on A wing, which was the dodgy wing. And uh, there was more commotion than normal going on. And we're looking through, all you could see was through this little slot. So there was like three or four of us here, and we're all fighting over to see what's going on opposite. And the screws had come off of our wing, just locked us on the wing, left us pretty much alone there while they're dealing, dealing with this problem. And we see them bringing this guy out, this, this young black guy. And, the screws might get heavy-handed every now and then. They was properly giving it to this fella, you know. And it turns out he'd smashed a toilet seat and he'd done another screw in the neck. And then and then the um, we've had the helicopter land to rush him off to a hospital. That was the that was the most violent one that I'd heard of there. Mm. But swell side, there was you know, lots of more or less funny stories rather than violence. You what know? was the funniest stories you got? Well, there was there was one. There was a guy called. Gary, I called him Gary. His name was Gary. Um, I just couldn't think of another name. But 
uh, one Christmas or New Year's Eve, we'd made a load of hooch, or he had made a load of hooch, and they used to have these cleaners trolleys, and it was two big square buckets, one for, I presume, one for dirty water, one for clean water. But he'd taken one of them off, and he was sitting in this trolley, and the front trolley was filled up of hooch. And he was, and the screws were there, they were just letting us carry on. And he was just going round, sort of like shuffling along on this little trolley, just going round people's cells, banging on the, bearing in mind he's like sitting on the floor more or less, he's banging on doors, offering us this hooch. <laughs> and um, he was out of his nut drunk. He was so drunk. And um, and then come banging up time, which was, I can't remember, maybe five to eight or something. They're calling out his surname. Say his surname's Thomas. Thomas! Thomas! Nothing. And the screws were shitting themselves because they'd let us just do what we wanted for this night, you know. And then looking round for him, looking round for him, we got banged up at... Like, as I say, five to eight, doors had to be shut, and then the final lock come round. After eight o'clock, your doors can't be locked. We heard a bit of commotion at about 20 past eight, doors opening and closing and a bit of commotion. Well, it turns out the next day, fuck knows how, he'd got himself in the cleaner's cupboard, but it was locked. And he'd fallen asleep in there, drunk. So there, the screws are looking around for him. And all the time, he was in this door, which was feet away from the screws. But one of them had heard him snoring. So I don't know how, but he's, they've, they've opened the door and he's in this locked cupboard. You know, that was that was a, a good old one. Um, I had a little bit of trouble. When I said that I wanted to be at, away from crime, I only had one instance where all of a sudden this particular guy started taking a few liberties with me. Maybe he thought that I'd, I don't know, maybe seen God or something. I don't know. But because I said, and, and I had changed as well with my whole attitude, you know, I was no longer boisterous and exactly. What was he doing? Um, he was just sort of like jumping in front of me and just, just doing the stuff that would normally start a row. And like, you know, it'd go to, not that I'd let him jump in front of me, but he would go in front of me. And I'd go, excuse me, mate. Rather than normally, you just grab hold of him and go, fuck off. i go, excuse me, mate. Still push him out of the queue, but nicely. Because now I'm a nice person. <laughs> Waiting for the phone. He'd get in front of me. Like when, when the next phone become free and I was about to walk in, he'd go to the phone. And I'd go, oh, excuse me, mate, I'm next. Still doing it nice, but letting him know that I'm not going to take it. And then at, at one point... When he come down, like he was down my end, I was at the very last cell on this spur, and uh, I've come out, and he was sitting in my chair, and it was it was this chair that I bought out of my cell. I come out, and he was sitting there talking to someone, and uh, I've come out to get some water or to go and see someone, and I thought well, that's all right. He's, he's just sitting in a chair. Walked off to see him, come back. I went, jump up, mate, please. He went, yeah, I will in a minute. I went, ah, oh, it's, it's my chair you got there, mate. He went, yeah, mate, I'll only be a minute. Then him in the chair got dragged into my cell when we went that way, you know. Which and it really fucking annoyed me that I was just it was like I was just being so nice and he's dragged me back there again, you know, where I didn't want to go. Do you think he did it on purpose because you're doing something good? I think I, I don't know. I, I mean I, I don't know. But he was definitely trying to he saw this new me as a weak person, you know. And I'm still the same person. I just don't want to be part of all that bollocks anymore, you know. You can't allow disrespect, can you? No. No. And then, you know, everyone will walk over you, well, you know, yourself, and it was obviously worse over there. But, yeah, went through the system. Um, always had these artists writing to me. New lease of life. Changed person. So what was the last prison you went to? 
the last prison I went to, went to was, um, it's closed now. It was called um, Latchmere House. It was for long-term prisoners, D category, like low security, although it still had a fence around it. It was in an extreme, I've done two of the pod. I was with two artists today um, in a place called Richmond, which is one of the best areas in London. And they always seem to put the prisons in, or they used to put the prisons in really nice areas. Um, Yeah, it was there. And that's where I I was allowed to go to work from there. Um, And then that's where I started university as well, just before I got released. Did I skip any of your prisons out? Oh, I was in. There was one in between Downview and, and and that was just that was called um, Spring Hill, um, and that's where I was able to go to uh, college. I was able to go out to college um, from there, which was good. Did they try and give you cellmates in that one? Yeah, that was that was dorms. It was old army oh, billets, This one, yeah. And, but the dorms had been divided. Uh, excuse me. The rooms, the dorms had been divided into either two man cell uh, rooms because they never had locks on two man rooms or up the end there was like three or four man rooms you know and it was there was no ag there really um on the very last jail that we was talking about um latchmere house i had one instance there um with some guys who come on to it was just before I got released. And in, in Latchmere House, there was two wings. One was when you arrive, you're in there, which is the big one. When you're going out to work, you go on to this other other one. And I was just applying. I just applied to go to university. I had the qualifications to go, and I was just waiting to hear. And again, I sort of I put my stuff in, in front of the washing machine. There was a big queue of bags. Mine's next, if you like, and I've, I've come out. And uh, the washing machine had finished. I'd gone into my in, in my room to go and get the washing powder and stuff, come back, and this guy was putting his stuff in the washing machine. I went, oh, mate, I said, I'm, I'm next. And he's turned around, he's sucked his teeth at me. And I was like, who the fuck do you think you're sucking your teeth at? Mm. And he went, I'm here, I'm here first. I said, mate, I'm in the queue, I'm going next. And he's just, again, he's just sucked his teeth at me. And he's bent over, and I've just gone up behind him, just pushed his, his arse with me foot, give him a good old shove. And I'd love to say his head went in the washing machine, but it didn't. <laughs> but he's, he's smacked into the washing machine. He's got up. I've, I've given him a dig and he's fucked off. And then he has come back with a mate as well. Mm, with a weapon or anything? No weapons, but I've, I've just put all my stuff in there. I've shut the door. As I've turned around, he was there with his mate and they'd shut the door into this laundry room. And uh, he's gone, that's him, like to, to his mate. And they've, they've come over. This guy, I knew him in... I, I, he knew me from swell side, but he only knew me as a, a decent player. And, and he even went, he's all right. You know, I, I didn't know him from, you know, I didn't recognise him at this point. But he said to this guy, he went, he's all right. But then he, he weren't having any of it. He's come to me. He's had to back his mate up. And that, that got nasty. But the, the main guy, the main black guy in, the, in, the, in that jail was a guy called Ninja. And I'd had a bit of a turnout with him in swell side when I first got there. And, but we had that sort of mutual respect. When you say you had a turnout with him, can you describe what happened? Uh, it was a friend of his was fighting with a friend of mine and it just went that way. We ended up fighting. Fucking stupid. We ended up fighting. Um, I was getting the better of him. And then I've sort of, I've stopped being all noble. He's got up and then he he, he did. He smashed me. You know, it's, it, I'm not going to try and lie. Um, but yeah, he, he gave me a, a bit of a good idea. But 
I wasn't aware, but he'd always said about how um, he respected me for the, for the way we'd, when I beat him, I sort of got up and went to help him up again. And it, it turned out he'd always been a little bit guilty of taking it further, you know, because I, I'd stopped, I'd beat him, I, I beat him enough and I've helped him up. When he's got up, that's when he's done me and he did sort of teach me a lesson, really. Uh, he weren't called Ninja for nothing, you know. I, I probably got a lucky punching or something. But when I'd had a, a row with these two guys in the laundry room, he'd gone back and Ninja, it turns out Ninja, had, I found this out later, Ninja had said to him, like, you know, what's the matter? And uh, like, what's happened to you two? And they said, oh, we've just had a row over on, like, the other unit. And uh, he said, oh, who was that with? He said, oh, we went, you know, a big fat bloke who laughs a lot. And he went, yeah, I know him. He said, I've run him with him. He went and fucking serve you right for taking liberties with him. And uh, yeah, that was good, you know, because that, that could have gone another way as well, you know. So what would you tell young people about prison survival? Uh, well, it's it's changed a lot and it is just what everyone else says. Don't borrow. Um, don't try and think you're a tough man. Um, and don't tell tall stories because everyone, you know, as much as, you know, a lot of the people in jail are, aren't educated possibly you know as such everyone can see a fucking liar when when he stood in front of you you know um it's just I hope you get out of there <laughs> when you live with that many people it's like they have x-ray vision on you isn't it they see everything through you it's, like... a, it's a good experience to to get to know people because although you may not understand why you're not trusting that person it probably turns out that he's an untrustworthy or they're an untrustworthy person because we've spent so much time in a confined space with a whole range of really nice people down to fucking nasty, horrible people. And when you're in that close um, proximity to all, all types of people, you sort of tend to get to know personalities and, and just even human instinct. You know, we learn that, you know, we might have just had a row or an argument here and then what caused it is what stays in our mind, you know, so we, we sort of don't go there again. What were your biggest lessons you learned inside? Say no. I've said that a few times to people. Is don't be frightened to say no. Because like I say, when that guy asked me to, to go and sort someone out on my wing, if I would have said yes, it would have very possibly set me back. And, I, you know, I'd sort of made this new path for myself. It would have very possibly set me back and... um put me on back on that old path but if you've got the not even guts but if, if you're just not afraid to say no um and it, you know if, if they talk down to you or you know sort of call you whatever for saying no you know call you weak or whatever let them crack on because you know in, inside you know that you're not to say no to someone is actually stronger isn't it sometimes especially someone who's at the top of the pecking order yeah that person respects that you're not just bowing down to them. I mean, I must have done it in a certain way. I mean, I was I was not friends with him, but I was I was definitely not at his level. But I know that he had a, a, a half a respect for me. So I think it was the way that I said no. You know, I weren't saying no. I ain't doing what you're telling me because I'd have had my throat slit, throat slit. You know, I just I made it clear to him in a nice way that I don't want to be a part of that anymore. What did you learn about yourself? Oh, so much. I am a fucking totally different person to the person I was when I went in. Totally, my whole identity has changed. Who were you when you went in? What like, I was characteristics? A, I was a thug. Um, I I had no care for anyone but me. I I sort of believed in all that old bollocks rhetoric that you know we're all together. We're all and and it 
most of the time it ain't everyone in jail's in it for themselves, you know. And I, I believed in that that criminal code, which fucking hardly anyone believes in. You know, they all say about it or write about it, and most of the time they didn't believe in it. But yeah, just you, you got to just try and be strong and just be the person that. I wanted to be the person that my family would like me to be, you know. Um, and, yeah, when I was in, I started a degree. Um, so I, I did go out from one institution, walked straight into another, you know. Um, I, I, I started university three weeks before I was released. And that was art? It, fine art, yeah. Fine art. Yeah. And that was, I think I should have left it a year or so, because I've come out of this, when I was in a low-category prison, it's still very violent, testosterone-filled, you know, macho environment. And then I'm coming out of there in the morning, going into university, when it's just completely liberal, open thinking. And it was, it was, a, it, it was at times a bit too much for me to handle. And I had a few sort of setbacks while I was in university because they're coming into a world where you debate and not argue, but, you know, if, if they disagree with you, they'll tell you. And whereas in jail... You disagree with your fists, you know? So I'd say something and someone would go, well, I disagree. And then I'd say, I don't give a fuck what you think. <laughs> That's not a debate, you know? That's me being a bully again, isn't it, you know? But it's the old me creeping out, you know? Like, I've done my best in jail to be a different person. When you walk straight out into a liberal environment, it's it's really hard not to stand out, you know? And there was a few little setbacks that I had while I was at university, in, in probably the first year, when... I was a prisoner up here walking around in a university, you know. Yeah, I mean, the rules that you have lived by for seven years, did you serve when yeah. you're 14? Yeah. They don't apply to the outside world no. in many cases, do they? And I was coming out, and I was institutionalised without a doubt, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, there was one instance where, like, you come up from the bar, and I, I, I didn't really drink. You come up from the bar to the back of the art studio part of the university. You walk across a car park. Um, as we're walking along, I've heard this car screech, and I'm, I'm with um, a, a friend, a, a female, a, a girl from the from the um, from my art class. We're walking up over to my my car, and we're halfway across, and this car has come screeching around the corner, and there's only us two in the car park and my vehicle over there. This car's come round. And I've got flashbacks. They're coming to get me. Um, I mean, the, the Sid, um, I told Sid I was going to see him when I got out. And he said, he, he's not, like at this time, just before I got released, he said, I'm not scared of you. Um, and then when I started getting town visits, it turns out he had two bodyguards with him. When I got released, he moved to Spain. Um so I think he might have been a little bit wary of me. So throughout your incarceration, were you bumping into your co-defendants? No, there was only two of us who got found guilty. Everyone else went. There was me and the guy I got the bags off. Everybody else walked? Everybody else walked. One of them got, got arrested with a loaded gun. He walked, which I've never really... Do you think you were set up? Oh, without a doubt. Apart from him setting you up, I mean, was it like a sacrifice? Like I, that's, what I've, that's, that's what I reckon. I mean, I, I, can, I can never say... But when I've looked at loads of different stuff and and put together, all, before I got nicked, there was like different people were doing, knowing people just act a little bit different. And at the time, you go, well, why are they doing that? And then just push it away. And they was friends with these. And 
everyone was trying to get me involved with with this Sid. Uh, not everyone, you know, several people were trying to get me involved with him. And at, at the time, I thought, why, why are they all pushing me towards him? Maybe they're, then I'm thinking, oh, maybe they're just trying to help me. You know, he can sell a bit of cheap clobber, a bit of cheap clothing, because he was higher up in it. And, I mean, I can't go to, I, I mean, I've, they're dead now, but I couldn't go to these people and go, was you trying to set me up with him? Because it's just going to... Because big big drug organisations are often working with the police. They'll sacrifice people, let the police make a big headline bust to cover up what they're doing. Yeah, well, I I, I try not to go down the conspiracy side of of my case, but there was stuff coming up in the paperwork about this guy in Birmingham um, who had a... I got told it was a code name of Superman... So um, there was stuff coming up about the Superman who was talking to customs, or who was talking to a copper who in turn was talking to customs. Now, I never knew if any of this was true, but it really answered a lot of questions that I had floating about in here. And by this point, this was, by the time I started to find out all of this and put it all together, it was like five years down the line, and I was no longer that person. And I, I was thinking for the first after I got sentenced, 18 months after I was sentenced, so it's two up to two and a half years in, every single night I was going to bed and I had it in my mind that I was going to go and get... When I get released, I was going to go and get, kidnap Sid. I was going to go and kidnap Mike. And I knew exactly what I was going to do to him, where I was going to take him, what was going to happen to him, and my excuse for where I was, like my alibi for that night. And then I had a... Like, one of a, a friend of mine, Kenny, he come down and he mentioned something one time, and I went, "Well, I told him that." And as I was telling him, he went, "Girl, you've got to get that out of your fucking head, mate," because he could see that I was. It was like raging me inside, you know. And uh, and then I just realised that he's, he's he's right. You know, it was it was just churning me up. I was going to do a lot of hard bird. Uh, my sentence was going to be hard to do with this rage inside me. And that was at the point when I sort of, I'm deciding to turn it. And now I thought, well, fuck them. I'm here. They're out there. I can walk out with my head high, knowing that I'd done it properly within them unwritten rules. And them snakes have got to go around forever with um, their head held low. What have you got written down on this? Oh, these were, we've gone through most of this. Um, yeah, just about being released. I had an instant when I was released. Um, I, I'd been working in clubs all the time, um, before I, I went away. Um, I, I was still sort of putting doormen into clubs and stuff while I was away. I was getting, I was, there was someone in charge of it. There was a club in Dartford and it was just a, like a social club where I just had a couple of doormen and I was getting a, a few quid off of them each week. And I wasn't allowed to work in the clubs anymore because you had to be licensed I thought, oh fuck it! I'm, I'm in a, you know, I'm an artist now. Yeah, I'm an art student. So I got someone's license and went on Photoshop and put me on it and my name and <laughs> you know that sort of thing. So I had my own license. <laughs> or we all had a license, you know. Um, it was all the same number, but we all had a license. So I was working in this club, and uh, there was me and like the other guy was a ex-con. He was out on, I think he was he'd just been released. And I said, oh yeah, come work at the club, you know. And then uh, there was a function room upstairs. There was a pub downstairs and a marquee, like a big tent outside, 
that done functions. And then there was a bit of commotion over there. So I went walking over there, and this guy has just turned round with a gun in his hand. And he's got his girlfriend, he's got hold of his girlfriend, she's screaming, he's pointing his gun at me, I've just put my hands up, I'm walking back, he's going, fucking get back, this slag blow, and he's got to buy the hair. I'm going, mate, and I, I, I didn't know whether it was his wife, girlfriend, just a punter, he's just, and he's screaming, screaming. This guy, Paul, I can't even change his name now, but Paul, he's come running out, um, he's seen it as well, and he's gone, fuck, and he's pointing the gun at the pair of us. And there's only us two, we're putting our hands up in the air. Um, he's shouting on his bed. We found out that it's his girlfriend. Um, and he's just going potty with his gun. He's, he hasn't fired it off. So I've sort of give Paul the eye. And I've started working my way around. We're, we're probably about six feet away from him, maybe four feet. And to sort of make this arc. So I'm figuring, because he's concentrating on me. I'm figuring if he's pointing the gun at me, if I can turn him away, Paul can jump on him. And hopefully, if the gun goes off, it won't hit me. So we've we've turned away. We're sort of like 180 degrees. And I'm looking at Paul. And he's just looking back at me. And I'm like, I'm trying to telepathically go, well, fucking jump on him then. It turns out that he thought that was... He didn't want to do that in case the gun went off and it would definitely hit me. So I thought, fucking hell, nothing... So I went, oh, fuck you. Because the guy's shouting at me. I went, oh, fuck you. And I went walking off to him. I turned around, turned my back on him, walked away to the main road. So I thought, well, if he comes with me, he'll come out to the main road. There's all these people passing. There's going to be some instances when he's going to look away. Then I can jump on jump on him. He followed me out there. And he went, where the fuck are you going? Where are you? I went, oh, fuck it. I've had enough. I'm going home. And I walked away. And I thought, well, surely someone's going to jump on him now. And they never did. He still got hold of his bird. He's pointing the gun at his, his, his girlfriend, pointing a gun at her, pointing the gun at me. So we've gone walking back in again. <laughs> so now it's, it's, it's getting fucking comical now. And I'm even saying stuff to him. Being, I think it's where well, I was you know, obviously a bit nervous. I'm saying things that are sort of funny. And even this Paul is laughing. And this guy is just shouting back at us. And I've put my hand in my pocket and I pulled out my cigarettes. And I went, just smoke. And it, oh, I put my hand in my pocket and he went, what are you doing? I went, I'm getting my cigarettes. He went, okay, you can get them. So I pulled them out. He went, I said, do you want a cigarette? He went, give me a cig." He's gone. He's fucked. He went, give me a cigarette. So I went, all right, here's a cigarette. So I've always lit my cigarette with my lighter in my right hand. So I've lit my cigarette. I went, do you want a light? And he went, yeah. So he's got the prick. He's got this gun in his hand. He's put his face out to me. I've got my left hand. He's put the gun down and bang, I've hit him. He's just gone over and he landed on this rockery, uh, like um, where you have sort of um, plants within big big boulders. He's gone down on there. We've gone down on him. The gun's next to me. I'm even got the you know sense of mind not to touch it with my my hands. I'm pushing it away with my elbow. Um, we've given him an idea. Now I'm. He's, he, it turns out you know, we've spoke to his girlfriend. We found out that's his, that, that that's his girlfriend. We've pushed her to one side. I'm going now. Fuck off before the police turn up. So we've you know we've given him a bit of a dig. He's got blood coming down his face. Now I've said fuck off before the police arrive. The managers come out with a, in in the clubs. They used to have these cotton money bags. So she's given me one of them. I've put the gun in there. I said go and put that in the safe. Hopefully the police won't turn up. I'll take it with me later and fuck it off. You know like frightening river or whatever so police have turned up maybe 20 minutes later he said we've just seen someone in town centre got a load of blood coming down his his head he said that you done it i went really 
He went, yeah, did you do it? And he's looked up in the CCTV camera there. I went, by all means, go and look at the fucking CCTV camera. So he's coming. He's gone to talk. I said, like, the guy had a gun. I said, the gun's in the office. He said, what was you going to do with it? I said, we was going to call the police. And, you know, and, and for whatever reason, the manager didn't do it. So I sort of put it on her. The cop has come out maybe 20 minutes later with his gun. He's got it in a plastic evidence bag. He went, it's a replica. He went, so you've beat a man up for no reason. I went, are you fucking serious? I said, he, he had me. There was like about eight or nine of us there. I said, it's on CCTV that he's got this gun to us. And you're having a go at me about like having the fucking, like getting the gun off him and giving, giving him a bit of a dig. So he's fucked off. Like the cop has gone. And that's that really rolled me. I thought, I've done something at the time I thought was quite fucking heroic. You know what I mean? And I'm getting slagged off for it. So he's fucked off. He's gone. At the end of the night, I've got in my car, in this little, there was like a staff car park. I've got in the staff car park. I've said goodbye to everyone. And I just got with one that, I'd started a relationship with one of the girls who was behind the bar. She's like my missus now. So I phoned her up. I went, I'd already told her about the, the gun incident. I'm sitting on the car at the end of the night. And I found her up. I went, uh, so I'm just leaving now. And this was, I don't know, maybe one o'clock in the morning. I said, I'm just leaving. As I'm on the phone, these two blokes have walked past. One's got a gun in his hand. One's got a sawn-off shotgun. And they've both got masks on. And I remember, I can't remember who the other one was, but one was George Clinton. Was it George Clinton? I think it was Clinton. It was an American president anyway. I went, and as I'm talking to her, I went, fucking hell, two people are walking past with guns and masks. And I'm, as I'm talking, one of them's looked around at me and seen me, and he's seen the light from my phone reflecting on my face. And I thought, if they think I'm calling the police, I'm going to get fucking shot here. And he just looks at me, and he went, and I thought, fucking hell, I know it, you know, because I knew the, the scallywags. In the, I thought, fucking hell, is, is he telling me he knows me? or? And I went, There's, I said, they're going to rob the place. And I, I thought, I've got, if I can just sneak underneath that camera... Because I knew that that was the only camera that would see me. I thought, if I can get under there, I'm just going to go. I can't, I'm not supposed to be working in the club. I'm out on parole. <laughs> you know, everything was, was fucking wrong. So I thought, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. So I've sneaked underneath this, um, <laughs> this camera. Then all of a sudden, one of the barmaids has come running out screaming. She's seen me. She's going, Gary, get. And I thought, fucking hell, I'm involved. I'm involved now. So I've got out. And um, I can watch my actually went, there's two men with guns and they're in, they're trying to rob the place. And I was going, right, you go in. And there was this other like big function room. I said, right, go in there. Then other guys and like the barman and bar staff are come running out. I was going, right, get in there, get in there. Um, and then I said, like, you know, where are they? And they said, oh, they've run out. Um, it turns out they went to a wrong door. The alarm went off on the door that they opened. Um, and they'd, they'd fled. But at the point... Um, a guy who was, he was having, they had to go down this alley into this door and they'd just picked the wrong door. One of them wasn't alarmed, one was. There was a guy down there at the end, just a punter, having a piss. He's turned around, he's seen these two blokes with masks, you know, one being a president of America and they've both got, a, <laughs> got guns. So he's come running out. He was as white as a sheet and I've gone, what, you get in there as well. So I knew that they were, they're not going to hang around. It's all gone wonky for them, you know. Too many people have seen them. They're going to get, the, the police are going to be there any minute. So I knew that they would have gone. So I've gone, right, you's come in and I've put everyone in the office. And the manager said, there's still people over in the, the marquee, the big tent outside. So I went, oh, fucking hell, I've got to go back out there again. You know, I was sure that they'd gone, but I'm all in black. And I thought, if they think I'm a cop and they, you know, they see me, they might sort of start on me. 
So I've gone out again anyway. I've gone to get the people from the marquee, brought them back. 20 minutes it took the police to get there. Mm-hmm. Like, the manager had called and said, there's two men, like attempted robbery, they've got guns. 20 minutes later, and I've kept everyone in the room. Oh, and what was funny, one of the barmen said, uh, the barmaid said, my boyfriend's outside, he's coming to pick me up. She went, um, and she's trying to call him, but there was no, because we'd gone into the centre of the building, there's no reception. She said, I can't get through to him. She went, would you go out and tell him to go? And I went, what, so you want me to go out again where the, the guys are with the guns? So I went, oh, so I've gone walking out there and I've gone walking towards his car and he's just sitting there with his mate in the passenger seat. I've gone walking over to him and he's on his phone and I've tapped on the window. He's just looked at me and accelerated off. He looked at me and he's gone. He's gone out of these gates that I was just talking about, gone, done a left. And I was like, what the fuck just happened there? And I've gone walking back in and I went, I tapped on the window. She went, oh, I got through to him, told him that his men were guns. Just as I tapped on the window, he thought I was one and fucking rocketed off, you know. Um, but yeah, when the police, the police turned up, as I say, 20 minutes later, by this time, we've all come out, we're, we're in the bar, we're looking out the windows. And I said, well, look, we, we probably can't go until they've got here. Then all of a sudden there was a, a car, a van, a motorbike and everything else had turned up, you know. And I was, I was like, well, it's fucking far too late. They're, you know, they're probably indoors with their feet up now, you know. But I was interviewing everyone. And I'm doing my best to sort of try and keep a low profile. I'm not even meant to be there, you know. I'm still out on parole myself. And um, so I'm being interviewed now, but there was an inspector just taking my, um, my statement so he said, well, what's your name? I said, my name's um, Gary Mansfield. I said, uh, he said, oh, you're the doorman, right? I said, yeah. He went, oh, bit of a hero, eh? He said, I understand. You went out here and then you went there and herded everyone in. He went, brilliant that you took the initiative and you had the, the you know, the, the sort of guts and foresight to do that. And he's right praising me. And in amongst them, you know, the couple I was on about earlier who took the bag and he walked past, he went, we had trouble with him earlier. <laughs> and the inspectors looked around at him and he went what do you mean and he said well earlier he beat someone up with a gun uh, someone pointed a gun at him and he beat him up and he looked at me he went is this true I went yeah what's the odds of it <laughs> and uh, I said but he pointed a gun at me this guy's pregnant wife and that woman I said I've got the gun off of him I said we both fell onto a rocker he cut his head open I said we got the gun off him and then he, he turned around and say this guy's surname was Stevens this inspector turned around to this PC, this police officer, and he went, Stevens, fuck off. Which I thought was a sort Hell of yeah. underlining message. <laughs> but I don't know what his problem was with me, you know? Um, but yeah, that was one night, three guns. What the fucking hell was going on there, you know? Do you have any more crazy doorman nights? Um, not really. I mean, there was, there was plenty there. I, I, I think I've, I've mentioned everything on this on this list yeah ah there's a this is a good little story do you know a guy called david rhodes Mm -mm. when i was in latchmere house which was the last prison i was in the d category prison there was a guy come in maybe I, i don't know how long but he never used to speak to anyone and in this jail they didn't let um nonces sex offenders in there so we knew it was a safe environment. There might have been a few grasses going. There was a copper one time who was in there. He never got touched because he was um, he was one who was helping um, Kenny Noy. He was the one feeding Kenny Noy information. You know Kenny Noy, Mm-mm. the um, 
the Brinks Matt, he was dealing with the Brinks Matt gold. Um, and then he killed the police officer and got not guilty. He stabbed him, I don't know, eight or nine times in his property. Um, and then he got done again later for, oh, he killed a guy up um, in Kent. Um, he, he, he stabbed him. Um, but this copper was, because Kenny Noy was a high up criminal, Ke- this copper was feeding Kenny Noy information. So everyone sort of thought he was all right, you know. Um, but there was this one particular guy who come in and he just didn't sort of, he, he was always on his own. And people tried to talk to him and he was, he was nice, he was polite, but he never had anything to do with anyone. Um, and then one morning when I was going out, something had happened in the jail. As I say, it was a, a lax prison. Something had happened and we had to wait in the, um, in a, like a waiting area before we were allowed out. And there was me and this guy. Um, I, I didn't even know, I knew his surname was Rhodes. So I walked in and went, all right, how are you? And we, we sort of sat there for about 20 minutes and he spoke more to me in that 20 minutes than he had anyone in the jail combined, you know? And I was going to, I think I was going, I may have been going home to Essex, which is on the other side of London to where this prison is. He had a car, like in, he used to park in like a housing estate just round the back, which you're not supposed to have. He went, I've got a car, do you want to lift to the station? And I went, no, no, it's all right, I'm going to go this way. And I said, go on, because he, he was going out of his way to take me to the station. So he went off, you know, he, he's come out of this jail, which is down an old forest road in Richmond. He's gone right, I've gone left, come back. When I've come back down the road, um, I've, I've come back in the jail, everything's hunky-dory. That night there's helicopters about, you know something's gone wrong. And, and I got back about maybe eight o'clock. Um, mate, by say half ten, you could hear the police out. You could hear there was loads of commotion. Turns out, this Rhodes, when he he was coming back into jail that night, he's parked up in his normal place on this housing estate, and then you had to walk down this forest road. Someone's come up behind him and put two in his nut. So they'd taken him out. Right at, in between his car and the jail, which was probably, I, I don't know, maybe 100, 100 metres, 100 yards. So they've done him properly. You know, it wasn't a sort of mugging. It was a, a, a proper takeout. Um, turns out I was the last one to speak to him. Bearing in mind, no one has ever spoke to him. I knew his name was Rhodes. That's all I knew about him. Um, I didn't even know his first name. I just saw Rhodes on his little card outside. Um, it turns out there was a London gangster. I, did, I forgot his name. Tony Brindle. Someone wanted him assassinated and they paid, I think it was an IRA man to come over and do him. And I think David Rhodes had supplied the IRA man the gun. So he was implicated in this attempted murder of Tony Brindle. Now, it was in the news a lot because when the guy went to assassinate Brindle, the police were watching Brindle's house and they knew that this was about to take place and they let it happen. Mm. So Tony Brindle would open his door then this Irishman had sort of started opening fire on him. It come to a point, he didn't kill Brindle, um, but this was the guy who had, I'm not saying that Brindle had paid him, you know, had got him murdered, but this was the guy that had give the IRA man the gun to kill Brindle. So I'm aware. Police had come to talk to me because I was the last person who saw him. Brindle's friends were my old friends. You know what I was saying about my old friends outside were high up. 
Brindle's friends were my old friends. Now, bearing in mind, I hadn't spoke to these for five years. When the police turned up, they said, well, we know you're friends with mm-hmm. so-and-so, who are friends with... And I said, look, I know nothing of what you're talking about. I didn't even know that, you know, that was him. But I was the last person to see this guy who had been sort of assassinated. And I thought, fucking hell, this could get me just by association from years ago, you know. And it is a logical... And you know yourself, once you get pulled into a conspiracy, and half hard to get out of, and just by association of knowing my man here, Brindle over there, and there's a... You know, I've joined, I've joined all the dots by... Ignorance. Conspiracy cases are impossible to get mm. out of, aren't they? Oh, you can't do it. Well, if you do, it's by luck. So what other challenges did you face uh, post-release? I found it... The first year was all right because I was like a little puppy that had been set free, you know. I was I was like a dog with two cocks, you know. I was seeing loads of girls and, um, and whatever I was doing, it was working, you know. I don't know how to... You know, I'd like to have bottled it, but... Um, it, I was just like living, living life. And then in my second year of university and bearing in mind that um, like when I got released at 9.15, I had my first lecture at 11.30 that day and I'd just been doing all this. And I was, and because of all these artists who are now five, six years later, they're like Turner Prize winners, if, if you know the Turner Prize, which is the biggest art prize in the country, one of the biggest in the world. I've got, you know, I'm now friends with the artists who have won that and, I've been nominated for it and I'm being invited to these big art parties in the West End, you know, me, you, you know, who's this ex-con. Um, so I'm living this great life. And then the second year, um, we was university shut for like six or eight weeks. And it was during that time when I wasn't occupied, you know, although I was still making my own artwork, it was at that point when I was, wasn't occupied that, I had time to reflect and sort of catch up with reality, if you like. And it, it sort of fucking hit me and like, and I weren't expecting it. It took me, took me into a little bit of a bad place, you know, a little bit of a dark place. Um, I think it's just where I didn't have coming from one environment straight into another. I hadn't had time to sit down and sort of let myself be free, if you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, I come through it. Come through it, all right. How did you come through it? Did you um, focus on certain things? Well, I, I was trying to like because when I when I was in jail, I, I realised early that I mean I, I don't know if you experienced depression yourself while you was in there, but I had it a couple of times, and I got through it the first time, and I didn't really realise how I'd got through it. And um, I had a few close friends who I was all right talking personal stuff to you know um but I, I didn't know how i how i'd got through it the second time um when i was like getting this bit of depression while i was in um i was a bit more i was taking a bit more notice of how i was treating the depression and i come through the other side of it all right there you know i wasn't trying to self-harm or anything like that but i got a bit of that while i was in jail um when i was freed um and all the time when i was in jail i'd um and and i'd got through it and i i was i was at the point when i was contemplating doing silly things to myself but i never done it and i I don't know how or why i didn't but i just didn't but i saw that there was a lot of people around us and i saw loads of people go out in body bags try to hang themselves or 
you know, finish themselves with a knife across the wrist or whatever. So it was it was massive thing in the jail. And it got to a point where, because although I'd always been violent, um, I never, I used to come away from the violence feeling a little bit guilty. So I knew that it, it weren't from there. The violence weren't there. You know what I mean? It was just, just there. Um, and yeah, when I used to see people getting, you could notice that they were getting into this dark place and no one wants to talk to anyone in jail because it's deemed as being weak. So when I saw people getting into this, that little bit of a state, this is when I was in Swaleside in the high security, then I'd say then, um, like, I'll do us a favour. They've got five minutes. So they'd come down to my cell and I'd say, look, I've had this, I'd make up a story about the girl I was writing to who's just dumped me or whatever. What do you think I should do? Sort of like, so it's lowering their barrier a little bit, you know? So they'd sort of confide in me and, you know, like help me through this fake problem that I've got. And then because we're in that moment, then they would go, I'll tell you what, there's something you could help me with. And then they'd tell you their problem, you know, and they'd, well, and whether it's prevented anyone doing anything silly to themselves, I don't know, but I used to do that quite often. It weren't on a weekly basis, but I've done it several times throughout the sentence, you know, just trying to sort of give someone a little bit of empathy and a, a sort of shoulder to lean on. It's like bad weather, isn't it? Comes in the depression. You can see the faces change. Yeah, it's horrible. And yeah. and the thing is, you see, when someone's getting it in jail, you, everyone knows that they're starting, they're, they're changing. So you do see people rally around a bit, you know, or, or the wing I was on, a few guys would sort of be a come on, try to sort of pull them out of it. But it would get to a point where it started to become contagious. And that's when a bit of self-preservation jumps in. And you do then push them away, you know, and you, you go, well, I've, I've tried to help. Well, you don't say this, but the attitude is I've tried to help. I can't. So I'm pushing it away before it affects me, you know, and it's, it's it definitely is contagious. Were the people that you talked to um, who did end up killing themselves? Not that I was, n- not the ones that I spoke to in, in Swellside, but on the off side to that, Years and years later, when I become an artist, I was coming back from the east end of London, where it's a very arty area, and someone across the road, and it was late at night, was shouting me down. He's going, Gary, Gary, is that you? Gary. And I've looked over, and I've just sort of, give me, I had no idea who he was. He's come running over. He went, Gary, isn't it Gary Mansfield? I said, yeah. He went, I don't remember me from Swellside. I can't remember what he said, like Steve Jenkins. I went, of course, Steve, how are you? He said, he said, you don't know, but you helped me out one night. He said, no, I was on the on the brink of, of sort of topping myself. He said, and you just pulled me up. And I had no idea who he was. I didn't. I couldn't picture his face or anything. And I was going, and I thought, well, I can't go. Oh, sorry, I don't recognise you, you know, because he's letting out this this thing. And I was going, oh, I'm really glad. And he's, I had like, business cards. I said, here's my card. You know, if ever you need anyone to talk to, which is what I sort of tell anyone now, you know. If you, if you need anyone to talk to. And he's going, oh, I'm fine now. I'm fine. I'm fine. So we'll take it anyway. Good to see you. And, and it, it was, it was fucking beautiful, you know? That's and really good. Karma, I'm Gary, just, yeah. I'm just gutted that I can't remember who he was, you know? Mm. And I even done, I, I don't mean to take it onto a, like in, into like an arty realm, but, um, from that talking to people like that, like we used to do, and I know one of your guys, I think it was Pepsi had mentioned about, telling people to write a letter to themselves 
and rip it up in the morning or whatever. I mean, I wasn't aware of that at the time, but I, I would say to people, look, write a letter to her. Possibly don't post it in the morning, but get it all out of your out of your system. And I saw that that helped a lot of people. And I came up with an idea for a, a big art project, which was to go out on social media and ask anyone with a problem, something they've been carrying around with them, to write it down into a letter and send it to me along with a pair of their shoes. And you know the proverb, never judge a man till you walk a mile in their shoes. <laughs> so what I would do is they would sit it, and I, I thought I might get three or four. And do you know I mentioned the specials earlier? Do you, do you know the specials? Yeah. The first person to get in touch with me was the specials bass player who's an oh, artist. Shit. Yeah, Bloody called hell. Horace Panther. Wow. He was the first person to get in touch. <laughs> and um, I thought, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's destined mm. to be, you know, all the stars aligned. But I thought maybe I'll get a couple of three people um, send me these shoes. So I live on a housing estate in in Rumford, Dagnam area. Um, and I've had these people, I've had letters turn up and a parcel of shoes. So my intention was, being, bearing in mind it was never judge a man to walk a mile in their shoes, I would get their shoes, walk a mile or half mile from my house and then half mile back. So I walked a mile in your shoes, <laughs> which is the old saying, um, and then I'd read their story. So that way, in the area of this art project, no one's entitled to judge you apart from me, and I'm not going to. Um, and I ended up with, I stopped it at 93. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I was walking around, I was walking around my housing estate, and I had, I was like putting on women's shoes, like gaffer taping <laughs> them to my feet, walking around, taking a photo of them. And you can see it on my website, right? All of these shoes. Well, one night, right? I, I forgot all about this. People but, are going to want to click. I'll put the website <laughs> in the description box for the video. Yep. But one night, because like, I, I used to work in this, uh, like a newspaper plant, and I'd be home at like four in the morning. So it's nice and quiet. On a, on a council housing estate or a project, walking around in a pair of women's shoes ain't the thing to do, you know? So <laughs> I'd do it like late at night when there was no one around. So I'd, I'd, I'd do the walk and then I'd come back to, my car was outside. So I'd do it, because I lived in a, a, a block of flats of apartments. So I'd do it all from my car. So I'd, I'd strap these shoes on, walk a mile, come back, take a photograph of them, cut the gaffer tape off with this Stanley knife or a box cutter take a photo of them so that's exactly what i've done anyway I've, I've just done that and i'm sitting reading this letter now that I've, I've cut the shoes off this women's pair of women's shoes i've cut them off with this um knife and i'm sitting reading this letter that the person had put in there and i've seen this car had come into the car park a white car i've looked up and it's a police car so they've pulled up beside me and he said why did you just take a photo of us as we drove past, I said, I didn't. He said, I saw your, your flash go. And it was a camera that I had, not my phone. Um, he said, I saw the flash go off on your phone. I said, no, it was on the camera. He went, so why did you take a photo of us? I said, I didn't. And then I've, it's just fucking dawned on me. I've got a plastic carrier bag with a pair of women's shoes, a roll of gaffer tape and a Stanley knife. <laughs> so I went... You're not going to believe this. <laughs> so I've pulled these women's shoes out. I said, I was wearing these. And I've cut them off. And I'm laughing because I know that the situation I'm in is unbelievable. Mm. And he didn't believe me. 
and they've they've sort of getting a bit closer. They, they've asked my name. Have I got a criminal record? <laughs> yeah, I've just got out of doing a fourteen. You know, why have you got gaffer tape? Why have you got a Stanley knife? Why have you got women's shoes? And I went. I'm t- and I've got this just this fucking soppy letter that turned out there was hardly anything on there apart from a, 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 sometimes I'd get pages and pages. Sometimes it would just be a, a few sentences or a paragraph, and there was nothing in there about the shoes. Because it, oh. it was this lady's problem that she, sorry, it was this lady's problem that she had. So I'm just reading this little menial problem. So I'm trying to tell them that this it's this art prod, and they are having none of it. You know, it's come back with my criminal record. Um, you got a weapon. Uh, yeah, all of that. And I said, and I didn't have my phone on me. I'd only just started. I said, Are either you on Twitter? And they went, no. So that don't, because I was only doing it on Twitter. So that doesn't help me. I said, look, and this was like maybe 4.30 in the morning. I said, look, my other half's upstairs in bed. I said, by all means, come up with me. I'll wake her up and you can stand in our bedroom with me and I'll ask her. So, you know, she's got no room to lie. And we've gone upstairs. It turns out when I've got there, my wife had, or my other half had opened the door, like, what's going on? And um, I used to keep all of these shoes that arrived in a cupboard outside my front door. So I'm just making it worse. I said, look, here's all the shoes I was on about. So I've got all of these oh, fucking victims. shoes. Yeah. Um, exactly. So she went, oh, no. what?" And then indoors I've got paperwork where I've been studying and, you know, I've got letters from people. And um, there's a, a the big thing. that It's obviously an art project. So, uh, yeah, he's, he, the copper even said, said to me, it's a, it's a fucking good job that you lived just where we pulled you up, you know. But, uh, yeah, so art could have got me in trouble. I would have definitely got out of it because it was on Twitter and that, you know, but what a situation to be put, put yourself into, you know. How did you find out about the Kersler Trust? Well, I'd always been involved. I'd, I'd entered the Kersler Trust while I was in prison, and the Kersler Trust is a charity that puts on an art exhibition for anyone, um, not necessarily just prisoners. It might be people who are on um, on probation, um, uh, people uh, who are about to be um, extradited back to their own country, even British people abroad in, in prisons abroad. So that you could, um, you send in artworks or poetry, uh, music, photography, um, and they display it in a, a massive gallery in London. Um, I entered it while I was in prison and it helped me out so much. It does give you, when you're in prison, whether you like it or not, you do lose a bit of your self-worth. You know, if well, if you're a, a sort of a thinking person, if you like, and, and you look at, you know that you're in there, that, that you're the sort of, it, this is a big bucket we're in, a, you know, society's bucket where they put the, the people who aren't wanted, you know. And um, to have people outside who sort of believe in you a little bit, it doesn't matter who it is, but that gives you a little bit of self-worth. Um, and that meant a lot to me while I was in there. And when I come out, I'd, I used to go to this cursor exhibition every every single year. Um, what year years did you go? I was released in 2001. Uh, sorry, 2004 was when I was released. Sorry, I got out of... I'm getting two dates mixed up here. University, I left in 2004. I was released from prison 2001, October. So I went to to that one, and I've been every year since. Um, 
I saw you there when you was you curated it. So I mean, I, I don't know in what capacity you re- remembered it, but you organised what what pretty much what went in and where it was hung and that sort of thing. Yeah, I had a little area, didn't I? The, yeah. I, I got massive, to pick some it? things in my area. And uh, for people who are, uh, might be interested in the Cursor Trust, I'll put a link in the description box below this video as well as a link to Gary's website. Um, if you've got people in prison and they've got any kind of skill, all the art skills, poetry, rap, writing. I, I'm the judge um, for the writing competition. And people can enter these forms of art into the annual Kersler Awards. And there's like a, is it platinum, gold, bronze, and then like honorable mentions. You can win a, a small amount of money if, if you get like the platinum. Yeah. But it, it, like what you said, it's the esteem. Because my mum entered it, me in it, when I was a, in prison abroad, through prisoners abroad. Yeah. But I only learned that I won the short story contest after I was back in the UK on the dole, couldn't get a job. Yeah. So I was really like beaten down at that point psychologically. But when I won that then, went to the Royal Festival Hall, read my little story to the audience, and it, it really did. Yeah. It, it gives part- you a bit of self-worth. Yeah. They also have a mentor program. So if you are excelling in your field or if you win one of these awards, you can apply to go on to the mentor program. And I applied, I got accepted, and Sally Hinchcliffe was my mentor, author of multiple books, and she came all the way from some little bird-watching island off Scotland to um, Liverpool in the beginning and then down to London. Every month we had these meetings, and that was an integral part of me becoming an author. So I would credit the curse of trust with helping me completely rehabilitate. And it's done that for so many people. Yeah, fantastic I mean, people. I, I, I hoped, I, I'd sort of got to know a few of the people there slightly because I was there every year. And when I do, the, the show's on for maybe six weeks, I would go maybe four or five times throughout that. They started doing a, a little... Um, a thing there where you could write a card out to the prisoner who'd, who'd made the work, whatever it is, and you can put a little note to them. And when I found out that they actually get that note, like there's maybe, I don't know, maybe 250 works there. I'd go and write to every, This is before I was involved with them. This was just when I was at uni or, you know, released. Um, I'd just go down there for three or four days and just, just write a note because I I know what it done for it means me. so much, doesn't and it? And then... Um, you, when you were there that night of the opening, which when did you do it? When did you you curated it, didn't you? So you God, it must have been about five years, five or six years yeah. ago, was it? So I met you down there, but everyone was you had everyone around you. It was a really busy night. It was busy, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I'd met you there, um, just sort of said hello, sort of thing. Um, and then I, because I've I, I'd go back into prisons and do workshops with art, uh, with artists, with the prisoners, um. And I wasn't. I, I contacted the cursor to see if I could do it in their name, um, but obviously because I wasn't um, affiliated with them, I, I couldn't. Um, and then I'd done a podcast a couple of years ago um, when I started making my own podcast, an art podcast, and Cursler was coming up. I, I asked if I could go and meet meet one of the guys there, uh, and I spoke to Sarah Matave, um, and we just done a little podcast about the show. Uh, an in-depth podcast. So I've put it out. Um, I was talking to Sarah about my work that I do. and um, I'll put a link to the podcast in the description box as well, if you can send that over. And she 
I, I was unaware, but she was quite impressed with my story. Um, and the board of governors, which is the people who runs the charity, there's maybe 15 people on there. Um, and someone was retired, not retiring. Someone was giving up their seat, you know, as a, as a, as a director. Um, and then they have to all nominate someone. So Sarah, unbeknownst to me, put me forward. And then I got a, an email out of the blue from Sarah saying, I've put you up um, as a board member of the Kersler. And honestly, I felt like fucking crying. <laughs> I was so, just even to be, mm. to be put up, you know. So I had to go and meet, meet the, um, the bosses. And I'm trying, when I've got there, I'm, I've, I've never been too good at selling myself, you know. Um, so I thought, I knew that I was on this short list or I got told I was on this short list. So I'm, I'm trying to sort of, when I've met them, I'm trying to say, I'm doing this, I'm being positive about it. I'm trying to sell myself. And then they just went, no, no, we're not, we're not, we haven't, we've gone past the short list. We're asking you if you want to be on the board. <laughs> so I was, I was like, oh, I like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. And, and the guy who stepped down, oh man, what's, he was on. He's been on your show. He, he runs the prison newspaper. Runs the prison newspaper. No, I've, I've interviewed in, him. Inside time. Oh, inside time. Um, are you sure he's been on my show? I'm pretty sure he has. He runs the prison newspaper. I can't. Re- I can't recall. I spoke. To, oh, I, I mentioned. I, I spoke to him just the other week, actually. Yeah. I can't. Where's he based? I can't remember. Mm. But he, it's not London. I'm, I'm sure you've spoke to him. I'm sure he's been on your show early doors. Mm. I'm sure he has. If not, I, I look a bit of a wally here, when I? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was anyway. It was him who'd stepped down, and I took his place. Oh, brilliant! I was going to say Mark Leach, but it's not Mark Leach. Doesn't ring a bell. No, it, 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 it's not him anyway. So, what are you doing with yourself these days? I've I've finished work. I stopped work to become an artist. Um, that's a bit of a struggle. Um, I, I was working full time and doing art on the side. Um, yeah, and then I just I've, I've been I've put on a few shows over the last few years, um, and the shows have been like do you, do you know Katie Piper, the oh yeah model that was attacked was, with acid. I was almost in tears reading her book. Right, well, I was doing a project called I come up with an idea about um. Uh, sorry to talk, talk about it's going off of, of your subject, but I was doing a project about the changing of identity because um, I'm forever a drug smuggler and I fucking hate drugs. And it's, that's a real, I, I dislike that more than the, the time I've done in jail, you know? So I was trying to sort of come up with an art project that, that looks at how I feel about my change of identity, my forced change of identity. So I come up with an idea about asking artists to, to donate an artwork to me, which is a metaphor for themselves, and I damage their artwork. And would that still be worth as much in society? Because I'm saying that I'm, my identity has been damaged. Am I worth as much? So I've put this to some artist friends. Bearing in mind, it's a bit of a potty idea, knowing I'm going to damage their artwork. And they just started saying yes. Like, a couple of them are like the biggest artists in the country. And one of them's donated an 18 grand artwork for me to damage. Wow. And Fantastic, man. And it, yeah, it all come about. And I thought, well, what can we do when we go to sell the work? We've got to donate it to a charity. So I was looking at charities that are to do with the change of identity. I was speaking to 
I was, I was speaking to an American actor who's, who's quite well known called, do you know Michael K. Williams? He was in, do you know Boardwalk Empire or The Wire? Oh, he's, he's, a, he's a proper dude. He's got a big scar down his face. Um, deemed as a villain in all the films that he plays, but he's totally not that sort of person because we were going to do a project together. But during then, we've come up with the Katie Piper Foundation. So I've contacted Katie Piper Foundation. We ended up doing... Um, I've just done on the third show and it's grown and grown and grown. I do a show every year and we was the biggest fundraisers or I was the biggest fundraiser for the Katie Piper Foundation. And she's helping women who've been attacked with acid, like thrown on their faces and stuff, isn't she? In countries like India where they can't even get treatment. A properly inspirational woman. She's, uh, I, I can't say enough about her. She's amazing. Yeah. Love to get her on the podcast as well someday. Um, What would you like to say then in conclusion to the people watching this? Um, Well, if if you know of anyone in in jail, whether whether it be in the UK, US, around the world, I mean, I I don't know how it it works too much in America, but it, it just try and get them to be creative in some way. You know, try and pull away slightly, if you can, from from the gangs and stuff that's going on. And there's so much talent from people who have been in jail. It is scary how, how much talent, you know, rappers have, you know, have been in jail that, are, that have made it. There's, there's singers, artists and actors and so many people have just turned, because criminals are so fucking clever. Yeah, but, but they direct it all in the wrong place. You know, they're all streetwise. They can, they can run circles around anyone out here you know what i mean but they just do it in the in the wrong if they can just channel it in a different way you know together we can properly make a difference you know yeah it's just all about channeling your energy into positive things definitely if people want to contact you what's the preferred method i can i'll put it below the video um i've instagram 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 yeah twitter you said he's active on twitter I'm, I'm not active too much on twitter so anymore. instagram is your preferred mainly instagram yeah or website and, and can people contact you through your website yeah definitely okay so if you've enjoyed this video then please put your comment below i just think you've told your story tremendously oh yeah you've really got a good knack for telling these stories yeah, yeah it's been brilliant please let us know if you've got any questions for gary put them down in the comments all the links in the description box below this video. If you want to click over to his website, check out his artwork, contact him through the website or Instagram. Um, huge thank you to all the new subscribers to the channel. If you've not subscribed yet, subscription box is on the bottom right-hand corner. Huge thank you to all the people who've donated on PayPal, Patreon, just giving, subscribe star. To keep these podcasts coming in a studio quality level with our sound engineer, and our professional cameraman. Huge thank you for doing that. And um, if you've got any other podcast guests you you would like to suggest, um, I've got two sheets written down at home right now. Um, Slowly going through them all. So we appreciate all of your love and support out there. And um, give us a hug, brother. (laughs) Thank you for bringing me on. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Brilliant. This week at Matalan, grab 30% off all family coats, hats, scarves and gloves. And there's 30% off in our Christmas shop across selected gifts, toys, decorations and more. There's more to love at Matalan. Shop in-store, online and via the app. Does your bike support your business while also standing up for the things that matter most to you? 
If the answer is no, maybe it's time to join an ethical bank. At the Cooperative Bank, we've spent 30 years campaigning on issues like climate change and social injustice. And we also offer 30 months free everyday business banking with our Business Direct Plus current account. Join us for business banking. New customers maintaining a credit balance of £1,000 plus. Monthly limits for cash and check transactions. Charges may apply for other services. Visit website for details. Subject to status, eligibility and T's and C's.